Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and our topic this week is to Huawei or not to Huawei. The debate in European capitals has been raging for many months now. We have talked about it before on the podcast, but things seem to be limping towards some ineluctable conclusion at the moment, following decisions in the UK, the publication of the so-called toolkit by the European Commission. And to help us make sense of what is happening, and in particular what's going to happen in Germany, I am joined once again by Janka Ertl, the director of ECFR's Asia programme and a senior policy fellow at ECFR, who is in Berlin, though she's about to fly to Washington to discuss these topics with Germans and Americans in the imperial capital. And also down the line from Berlin, we have Jan-Peter Kleinhans, who is the project director the Stiftung Naya Verantwortung's IT Security in the Internet of Things program. Why don't we go straight into it? Jan-Peter, why don't you tell us what's going on? What's the importance of the 5G debate? Remind our listeners who might have forgotten it. <laughs> sure. I mean, if there are people on the world who have lived under a rock for the past one and a half years, I can fully understand that not everybody got hold of the of the 5G conversation. So in an essence, from a technology perspective, why we talk about this is, I think, three points. The first point is with 5G, it's not just a communication network anymore. It's not just about people-to-people communication anymore, but it's a part of the value chain. So for value creation, be that in a smart factory or uh, for autonomous driving, we need our digital infrastructure. We need our communication networks. So every industry, every sector, every part of our life will be dependent on the availability and integrity of the communication network, just like we are today already dependent on the energy network. The second point is 5G is a little bit more complicated and complex than the energy network. So it's a huge standard. It creates a lot of possibilities, a lot of uncertainties, and it's simply a highly complex technology that is really hard to manage, that is really hard to secure. And this in combination with the first point, it being much more central to to key aspects of our society and industry, this creates a pressure point. So you have a, a highly complex infrastructure that your industry highly depends on in the future. And you should take care of its integrity, availability, and confidentiality. And that brings us to the third point. One of the technology leaders in this technology is a Chinese company. And if you put that into perspective, what, for example, the European Commission um, said in the beginning of last year, that China is not just a competitor, but a systemic rival, that then creates the political dimension that We don't feel so comfortable to rely on a Chinese actor or a Chinese company with such a key technology. And in my opinion, these three points together partly explain the rushity and the longevity of of this current debate. I think what really, really kicked this debate off in the end was the Americans putting pressure on the Europeans and their allies. And that's what, what is probably the most striking about this debate is this geopolitical dimension that is added to it. Because if it wouldn't have been for Mike Pence at last year's Munich Security Conference stepping up and saying, look, guys, this is a problem for the future of our cooperation in intelligence and in the military realm, but for our cooperation in general, then we probably wouldn't have had this fierce of a debate in Europe all over the place because we have not had this debate in the 3G and 4G network infrastructure. Chinese vendors are very, very present there. 
um, because we just simply didn't see them as a threat. And it's a different kind of assessment that is now taking hold. And it is kind of has to be seen in the larger context of the changing geopolitical realities around Europe. But there's also two elements to, to this, and maybe we can talk about them when we're discussing this so-called new 5G toolkit. But there's one part which is basically about spying and our infrastructure being compromised because China is uh, is not a like-minded power and having access to the 5G network raises questions about the independence of Huawei from the Chinese state. But then there's another element, which is about the future of our of our industrial strategy and whether there's a danger that Europeans just get shut out of a massive new set of economic opportunities in the future if, if we allow the Chinese to come in and set all the standards for it. And these two things often get elided with one another. I fully agree. And I would say this is partly the problem between the European debate and the US debate, because for for the U.S., national security and economic security are two sides of the same coin. And during the debate, not just with uh, Trump's trade conversations, but also from other people out of the administration, there was a conflation of the issue. They would talk about economic security and technological leadership in the same sentence, talking about national security. And this is very alien to European policymakers, where you have typically national security issues dealt with on the member states level and then industrial policy dealt with on the, on the European level. And this makes it harder for Europe to find a coherent voice and to, to think about this issue from a more strategic perspective. It's also very asymmetrical because, you know, if you're in Berlin, there's obviously questions about the future of your auto industry and of Siemens and your kind of tech companies in this 5G era. If you're in the UK, there are questions about the five eyes and whether the US will carry on sharing intelligence with you. But if you're in Sofia, is there that much difference between being spied on by the NSA and being spied on by the Chinese security services? And anyway, you know, you don't have any 5G technology, you're never going to have any. So why not just get the cheapest technology that you can get your hands on? Because cheap is, I mean, that's, I think that's the, that's one of the key elements of this conversation that we were talking about this being like an economic question. Can we afford a 5G network that is built by European suppliers and the like? And I think this also conflates to different sets of debates. Why um, are Chinese suppliers cheaper? And why is this an economic problem in the end if we talk about technological sovereignty? We're talking about not only subsidies from the Chinese side, but also a sort of market dominance. If you can sell a lot of kids all over the world because you get preferential access to markets or because it's part of deals that the government cuts or because the government backs you up, then a certain degree of market dominance also allows you to set a certain price. And that's become a problem for European suppliers because the European market has not been protected against this kind of Chinese state capitalism very well in the past. And we have not been able to find the right instruments to deal with it. European companies, therefore, have not had a level playing field in their own home market and have to compete on unfair grounds. And that's something that the European Union wants to change, that most of the member states are really concerned about. Because it does matter whether you will be leading in key technologies, whether you have foundational technologies that are important for other future developments. And that matters for the bigger member states in the European Union. But dependencies can, are also relevant for the smaller member states. And I think it's quite interesting to see 
that those member states that have already come out with decisions like Estonia or Romania or Poland are all not, it's not France and Germany. They're having a harder time. Yeah, but they're, they're not very worried about China. They're worried about Russia and that's why they want to suck up to the Trump administration. They are worried about their relationship, their transatlantic relationship. They are worried about the US potentially reneging on its Article 5 commitments. But this is all kind of, it, it's binding together. It's also not just about the potential of being able to spy on a network, but it's also about being able to control. I think that's what Jan Peter alluded to in the beginning to say, you know, the access to a network, the access to communication, um, the availability of a network is key. And that's key for all of the economies in Europe. This is kind of the same baseline for the small and the big member states. No one wants to grow dependent on someone else and no one wants their networks to be fully dependent on one supply. That brings us into this this question about the toolbox, which for people who listened to earlier podcasts, you might remember us describing it. But essentially what happened when the 5G debate came up was it was a bit like the 2003 debate about the Iraq war where different member states lined up with America or tried to protect themselves from America, depending on how much pressure the US could put on them. And there was absolutely no sense of a common vision about what was going on. And everyone ended up looking kind of silly and also having quite a lot of pressure put on them. And then after quite a lot of confusion, the European Commission was brought in to try and lay out some parameters for the debate and they did a threat assessment exercise where they talked to all of the governments in 28 member states as we still were in those days and published quite an impressive report at the end of last year which was looking at the vulnerabilities that we had which covered a lot of the vulnerabilities we've been talking about so far but then they also promised to publish a toolbox looking at what we could do about the these vulnerabilities does one of you want to explain what's in the toolbox sure maybe for me, the, the toolbox exemplifies the discussion that we had so far. So among the three, three of us, we quickly identified that it's not just about the IT security aspect and the national security aspect, but that there is an industrial policy dimension to it and that um, we should talk about or we should be worried about from a technological leadership perspective about being too dependent on, on foreign equipment. And of course, because this is a highly political issue, that was the territory where the, the 5G toolbox from the commission couldn't really go. So I think it was right from the commission to stick um, to the largest extent to IT security aspects and, and issues of the national security dimension, how to disrupt the network and how to mitigate that. What the toolbox did was it put a lot of new responsibilities onto national regulatory authorities. So the, the information security agencies from the member states and the uh, telecommunication regulators from the member states, they will have to do a lot of catch up in the following years and a lot of capacity building to even fulfill half of the new requirements that are put onto them with this 5G toolbox, if member states choose to, to implement those. It focuses on the full spectrum of insecurities in mobile networks. So it's not just about the vendor, but it's about operational procedures from the operators, how your risk management on the operator's level looks like, how you deal with contractors, how you do, how you deal with third-party or third-level uh, support, all of this. So I think it assesses the full spectrum of threats and deals with them in a very commission-like style. And that means we will put new responsibilities to member states and we ask them to do stuff. And this is why I have this kind of snarky comment. I think the commission fell into the trap 
of assigning responsibilities that you yourself don't have to do the work for. I'm a little bit worried that the 5G toolbox sounds very strong on paper, but I, I want to see an evaluation in five years how many of those measures got actually implemented in the real world. And about that, I'm, I'm highly skeptical. Jan Peter, you make it sound very nice, but it was super abstract the way you described it. So I, I've got no idea what any of these measures are. What kind of stuff could people do? And does this actually mean that there will be some consistency between member states about whether you let Huawei into your system or not. The 5G toolbox gives member states, I mean, it, it cannot be, none of the measures are ma- mandatory in the 5G toolbox. Because at the end of the day, just like Estonia or, or Poland or, um, or Romania did, at the end of the day, as soon as a member state frames this as, as a national security issue, um, they can deal with it in their own way. What the toolbox did was it said, for example, that national operators have to have certain risk management in place or they... What does that mean, risk manager? I mean, it's... it's Well, a simple thing, for example, the question, who is allowed to install a software update to the base station? Does it have to be the operator or can the operator give direct access to the vendor to then, so that the vendor then from a remote place somewhere in the world. So it's the vendor Huawei. I don't, for people who aren't experts, who knows what the difference is between operators, what? So, Deutsche Telekom so take, and the vendor is Huawei. Is that what you're saying? Or? Yeah. So let's take the, the example of, of Vodafone. Vodafone um, needs to update 10,000 base stations. The question is now what is a base station? Can you explain these things? Because not everybody spent their life looking at telecoms engineering. So if you look to, to, to any top of the roof in your city, uh, then you see antennas on these roofs. And these are not from the houses, but these are from the, the mobile network operators. These are these antennas on the roofs are the base stations, basically. And the base stations then connect typically with a with a fiber optic cable um, to the server network of that operator. So when you do a call like we do right now, actually my radio waves go to the next antenna on the roof. And from there, they go through a cable to the operator's network. And from there, they go to the internet. And of course, a lot of things can go wrong on this way from a security perspective. So for example, how well did the operator secure his own network? So for example, could an adversary build up his or her own base station uh, and then take over a region in terms of, or capture a region in terms of communication calls? Or can I just tap into the network of the operator and listen to all conversations? So in that sense, the, the, the big challenge is what are the mandatory requirements to operators how to secure the network and the, how secure the, the each equipment is, each box is, that sits on the roof or that sits in the basement of, of Vodafone or Telefonica. And in order to have security, that means that Huawei should not be allowed. To, just to be super concrete about this, because does the toolbox say anything about whether Huawei should be allowed to install software on the base station? So in the entire toolbox, um, you don't read a sentence that Huawei shouldn't be allowed to participate. Okay. Um, or ZTE, the other uh, Chinese vendor, shouldn't be allowed to participate. But it talks of, of high-risk vendors, and it defines high-risk vendors in a way that says to assess the trustworthiness of a vendor, we cannot just look at a particular box from a, from a technological perspective and assess the, the IT security of it, but the jurisdiction where the vendor comes from, where the technology originates from, 
this has an impact on the overall trustworthiness. So the origin of technology matters. So following the 5G toolbox, it makes a difference if my base station comes from a country with a rule of law or if it comes from a country that doesn't have a rule of law. In my opinion, a big change and an important change because it allows member states to, based on this, to argue, well, we do not want equipment that does not originate from a state with a rule of law. And in essence, that means we do not want Huawei or ZTE because they are produced uh, in China. That all sounds very good, but it doesn't seem to be yet impacting on any of the national debate. So because, you know, two days before this came out, the British government announced its um, <laughs> its decision. But Mark, honestly, Britain is not the best example in waiting for the EU to make decisions anyway. I mean, they're out. So it was relatively clear that they would make their call without paying any attention to the toolbox. It doesn't matter for them. Also, there is a very specific British attitude towards this, basically saying we have the best intelligence and whatever we decide could be good for us. But since all of you other European states do not have the same level of intelligence and testing and cybersecurity that we have, this is all not recommended for you in the first place. So that's been the British attitude from the start towards this topic. But I think just to kind of get back a little bit into what the toolbox means and how it should be read, because the problem with all of the commission documents always is there is a certain level of interpretation that needs to be done here. There are things that the commission can do and there are things that the commission cannot do. And in this context, I think the toolbox is just the end of an entire set or it's just a step on the entire set of documents that we've seen since the beginning of last year, where the strategic outlook document that was mentioned earlier already said we have a systemic rival in China, where then legislation on investment screening was introduced in on an EU level, where defensive measures were strengthened with and the risk assessment was put into place to basically say, okay, so what is the challenge that we're facing here? And it had a heavy emphasis in that regard on the question of, okay, where do where does KIT come from? What does it mean if an authoritarian power is all of a sudden a technology superpower? This is all kind of the subtext of this. And the toolbox is just part of that. I mean, it has to be read in that context. It makes a specific reference to the investment screening mechanisms. It makes a specific reference to trade defensive measures. It makes a specific reference to anti-subsidies. It has a very, very clear table in it that basically says, okay, these are the risks and these are the mitigation measures. And for the question of state interference through 5G supply chain, the only risk mitigation measure that is basically mentioned is third-party suppliers and the question of how to deal with third-party suppliers. So I think it ha has to be like deconstructed a little bit to see what is actually mentioned. And what Jan Peter is saying is very right. It offers help for the member states that now have to make a decision. This still remains a national decision. It will not become an EU decision unless the member states decide that at some point. And so member states kind of can get their arguments right. They can make an argument with this toolbox for including Chinese vendors in limited parts of the network. They will not be able to make an argument on the basis of this toolbox for including Huawei and ZTE kit in the core of the network. That is basically eliminated in this toolbox. Now, they don't have to pay any attention to them. While you're talking, Yanka, because like the core and the periphery of the network is the yeah. sort of stuff which has been bandied around for months without anyone yes. really understanding what they mean. We, Can you we explain them? deconstruct that a little yeah. bit as well? Of course, Jan Peter is more the technology expert, but maybe I'll try to say it in a way that is kind of uh, the easy, the easy version of it. In the 3G and 4G infrastructure, basically, we had the antennas out there in the field and the core network. 
And if you secured the core network because all the sensitive data would run through it and all that basically the computing would take place in the core, then securing the core would make a lot of sense. Now in 5G, computing moves to the base stations. Basically, they become smart. They become little computers. And computing takes place outside of that historical core. Basically, the core moves to the outer rim of the network. Our core functions move to the outer rim of the network so that computing can take place much closer to the end user. And what that does is it allows actual 5G functionalities. It allows for low latency, so no delays in the communications. And it allows for this enormously high speed that you need for things like autonomous driving. You know, if a child runs across the road, it matters that the car has, has to react in milliseconds. This kind of low latency, you can only make that happen if that computing takes place so close to the actual place where it's happening. So you were saying that nobody's going to be allowed to get the thing in the core, but you're saying there is no core anymore. Everything's now core. Because we, we will not have a 5G standalone infrastructure immediately. It will be a 4G infrastructure and then a 5G infrastructure kind of mounted on top of it and slowly moving towards 5G. So in, in the current system, we can still have a 4G core and a 5G radio network. And that kind of, you can, you can do that. But it will not lead to a long-term solution where you can actually then have the full functionality of the 5G network. And the sensitive parts of the network have not been defined as just the core in the toolbox, but they've also been defined as the access part of the network deliberately because 5G functionalities are different. So there are two big member states one ex-member state and one actual member state that we always come back to, which is the UK and Germany. If you take everything you've said, it sounds like you're both quite sceptical about the British decision. Is that right? And and what's wrong with it? Peter, do you want to go? (laughs) Sure. So with the UK's decision, I think it has to be put in perspective and you you cannot compare the 5G toolbox from the European Commission with UK's 5G strategy, simply because every national network or every country is kind of unique. That's kind of obvious. But if we look at the case of of the UK, UK has on the technical level, the most expertise with talking to, to the operators and assessing the security of each of its operators. So that has been done historically since more than 10 years in the Huawei Cybersecurity Evaluation Center. So I would argue that maybe even in the world, Nobody else has as much insight into the daily struggle of operators than the UK. So a lot of technical expertise. On top of that, they never, ever allowed ZTE to enter the market from the get-go because they said our whole approach is focused on mitigating the risk of one high-risk vendor, and this is Huawei. If we allow ZTE to enter the market, our entire approach um, falls down and doesn't work anymore from a risk mitigation perspective. That's the second thing. And the third thing is they strongly believe that you can separate the core and the access network. And they continue to treat the core network very differently than the access network. I think in their particular circumstance, it makes sense to do this simply because of the level of expertise that they have. But comparing the Europe's strategy or the 5G toolbox with UK's is, is, is kind of comparing apples and, and pears. I'm just wondering whether you think this is a crazy decision that the UK's made or a good decision. Sounds like you think it was okay for the UK, but not for anyone else. Yeah, and I think the Brits haven't fully figured out what this means in operationalization terms in the end, because they have put a, um, a number to Huawei. They said... They cannot have more than 35% of the access network. That's going to be really hard to control for. 
what kind of measures are you going to take to make that clear? You know, how do you going to how are you going to register where exactly Huawei Kit can be employed? They make an argument for saying high risk installations like nuclear power plants or military installations need to have more secure kit. Now, I really find that problematic from also from a democratic perspective to basically say to certain constituencies that their networks need to be a little less secure because their communication is a little less important. So I think that all this has not been finalized yet and not really thought through how in operational terms this will actually be structured and what this actually means. Also, there's still a parliamentary debate also in the UK going on about this, and that shows us how difficult this decision in the end is because it boils down to a question of where do you want to position yourselves vis-a-vis China? And that has become a harder and harder call. So the, the British parliamentary China. debate has changed somewhat. It's going to be more like the French parliamentary debate and a bit less like the German one, I suspect, with Boris Johnson's new majority. Should we move on to Germany? Because that is the, the kind of nuts and bolts of this, and we've only got a few minutes left. And Germany still hasn't sort of decided yet and is in the kind of last stages of, of a huge psychodrama where Angela Merkel seems to be tempted by going down a sort of British route. Boris Johnson, as we know famously from what he says about cake has never met a binary choice that he really liked he always wants to have his cake and eat it and Angela Merkel seems to be in a similar place but yet bit by bit the political landscape around her has been trying to force this binary choice upon her the other political parties being very critical of where she wants to go and now her own MPs including our co-chair Norbert Röttgen um, and the German Industry Association all raising big questions about allowing Huawei into the network. Can you tell us where we're at and what the kind of decision point is and how you think it's going to play out now? So where we are at the moment is that we have basically done the assessment in the government. Everyone has come out with their positions on this. The only one that that the Germans are waiting for at the moment are the Chancellor and parts of the Christian Democrats. So the uh, Social Democrats have basically said, we want all Chinese kit out in 5G networks. Um, They have been very, very clear about this. So has the Social Democratic-led foreign ministry, but so have also been the services relatively clear in their position. The Ministry of the Economics and the Ministry of the Interior have been less clear in their positioning, but slightly tending towards a limited role for Huawei. And uh, it boils down to a parliamentary debate in which we have the Liberals and the Greens and the Social Democrats all in favor of a very restricted role or an exclusion of Huawei and the uh, Christian Democrats kind of been split in half. So it will depend on how the chips will fall over the next few days, likely. There was an initial call by um, Chancellor Merkel to say we want to decide this only after the council meeting in March. I think there's not that much time left. A lot of pressure is being built up at the moment to come to a quick decision because what we are seeing is that you know, the rollout needs to happen. The spectrum has been auctioned. People want to roll out 5G. The operators want to roll out 5G and they cannot wait indefinitely for the CDU to make a decision. So this is where we are at the moment. It's still kind of um, on the edge. We still don't know. But it could well be that Germany takes a different course than the Brits. So what would that course be then? Completely excluding Huawei. Yeah, de facto exclusion is still on the table. 
So it is a limited role. Define a limited role because the UK is a limited role if it's only up to 35%. That would be like putting yourself in the exactly same problematic situation. And maybe Jan-Peter can say how well we would be equipped to deal with something like that, a 35% role of Huawei in the access network, for example. Jan-Peter, do you think that's a possibility for Germany and our um, security services to actually deal with that? To be honest, I I think it would be a huge step forward from right now because if we look at, for example, our our largest, largest incumbent, Deutsche Telekom, they have almost 70% Huawei equipment in their radio access network. I would be happy about a mandatory requirement that says not more than 35 or 33% of high-risk vendors in your radio access network. That would be a huge step. But to take one step back and um, kind of assess the, the politically the, the last one and a half years, for me, what's striking, and I would be interested to hear what you think about this or how you assess this, uh, Janka, for me, it's striking how differently the different member states dealt with the debate. And I think politically, the 5G debate blew up in the face of the chancellery because they, they didn't deal with it quickly enough. And I think we would be in a very different position today if, for example, one year ago, February 2019, the chancellery would have said, look, we we understand there are different risks than just the IT security aspect of this. We set up a task force between the the foreign office, the services, the chancellery, and the Ministry of Interior, and they are assessing the the requirements and they are assessing the geopolitical landscape. And by summer, we will have a decision. And then this would have allowed to, to get the microphones away from all the ministers because over the past one and a half year, I have the feeling that every minister in in Germany who had the opportunity to speak about Huawei into a microphone did so willingly and and often, and this made the debate highly political. So I'm looking at countries such as Sweden or Japan or also New Zealand and Australia who dealt with it in a much more quiet fashion and simply put in place a veto right for their security services to say, well, this particular upgrade we are not happy with, the operator, please go back and look for a different vendor. In my opinion, this would have saved us a lot of time and political hidden agendas and opportunism that we see right now. I agree with you that it would have helped us in kind of speeding up the process and getting to a solution. But I think what we're seeing now playing out is just something that needed to happen. It is the entire conversation about what our role is between the US and China, where Germany positions itself, is the conversation that can no longer be mitigated by just a technical solution, something that's discussed in the Chancery and Merkel will take care of it. That's not the way this goes anymore. These cut down to the very like future of what we are and where we want to be and how sovereign we can be in this new geopolitical climate. And therefore, I think this it was a necessary societal conversation. And I'm very happy that actually that the Bundestag got involved so much because it actually puts these questions on the map of policymakers and really changes the kind of the way we talk about our relationship with China. And I think it was really a necessary step along the way of kind of maturing relationships and uh, taking the China relationship away from just the economic dimension. And how humiliating will it be for the Chancellor if Huawei is kept out of the networks completely? I don't think this is really about humiliation. I think this is really about a political decision that has to be taken in a very, very complex climate. That's very nice, but it has been quite personalised, some of the way that it's been reported. I think it would be seen as a big blow to her. Yeah, I'm not so sure that our chancellor really cares that much about that humiliation kind of dimension. I think she cares about other things. But I think it would be a quite a step if Germany takes that decision to de facto exclude Huawei due to the licensing of the measures that we take or whatever, as the decisions that the, the regulatory decisions that are being taken. 
it would have a, a huge ripple effect for other European countries that uh, would then possibly take a similar decision. And that could boost, um, you know, German credibility within Europe by a large degree, because it would also be seen as Germany not taking a very German decision of having the cake and eat it and having great business with China. And at the same time, kind of taking risks for cybersecurity that have an effect on all of Europe. Great. So we end with politics versus technocracy. We'll see which wins out in the next few days. We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. I don't know what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Jan-Peter, but maybe you can tell us. So the thing is, I'm not really reading nonfiction books in my spare time. What I do read, I'm a committed fantasy and science fiction uh, reader. But in terms of nonfiction, I'm right now reading an interesting paper from Jeffrey Ding and Alan Defoe. It's called The Logic of Strategic Assets. And I would highly recommend anybody to read it who is interested from a policy perspective, how to look at technologies and resources from AI all the way down to oil because they they put out a really concise framework how to look at these assets from a strategic policy perspective. Cool. And what about you, Janka? Yeah, I I read Robert Caro's working a while back and that sent me down a a rabbit hole of Robert Caro reading. And the problem is that he writes these really long books about Lyndon B. Johnson and the power broker and the way the political power is structured and political power is created. And it's all fascinating, but I think I will spend probably the next 20 podcasts talking about it because I will never get done with uh, finishing all of the books that I want to read on it. But the Lyndon B. Johnson part one, halfway through, that's quite an achievement already. Congratulations. I'm going to mention a, a book I haven't started reading yet, but it's just arrived in the post called Clash of Empires, Currencies and Power in a Multipolar World by Charles Gav and Louis Vincent Gav, which is looking at the sort of conflict between the dollar and the euro and the Chinese currency. And uh, it looks very interesting. But also maybe just because I, I've just come back from Lisbon, had a very interesting discussion with one of our colleagues there about Portuguese literature. And we were talking about um, a, one of the most wonderful novels uh, in the world by Saramago, the, the former Nobel Prize winner called All the Names. And I think obviously that book probably will both be more politically interesting, but certainly have a longer shelf life than any of the nonfiction books we mentioned. Thank you very much to both of you for such a fascinating discussion. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please give us a fantastic review or a rating on whatever platform you're using to listen to this podcast on. Take to social media, let your family and friends and acquaintances and followers know about the podcast because they deserve to be better informed about uh, Huawei or not Huawei. And um, we will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast. The researcher of this podcast was Hannah Zulfi Bowman. Our producer is Marta Saletti and our editor is Marlena Riedel. But for now, from Janka Ertl, Jan-Peter Kleinhans and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Goodbye.